Welcome to the Dev Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, it's myself and my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Abby Cardis. Hello. I want to talk about masking in healthcare settings. The long march of COVID normalization has come for masks at the doctor, the hospital, the pharmacy. Following a shift in CDC recommendations in the fall, we have seen universal masking in healthcare settings break down. You know, across the country, hospitals, doctors' offices, and other healthcare providers are dropping their mask mandates, usually following guidelines that have been dropped at the state level. So the bottom line here is that the idea of lifting these requirements in hospitals and nursing homes, even as hundreds continue to die of COVID every day, is unacceptable. You know, for the week ending in April 17th, over 1,300 people died of COVID-19. We've had Hundreds of nursing home workers die in 2023 alone so far. Healthcare settings, especially nursing homes and long-term care facilities, these are among the places where the most vulnerable populations reside and are, and where the likelihood of encountering infected individuals is high. So we're really moving into a kind of stage where we're facing a level of abandonment that is really kind of beyond what we've seen before. And to de-escalate pandemic mitigation in these settings is a hostile and sort of dangerous Act. And it also puts a huge burden not just on people like me who now have <laughs> much higher risk of COVID going uh, into these spaces, but it also puts a huge burden on healthcare workers. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say not only obviously is this happening in the United States, it's also happening in other countries. Canada is a really good example. Throughout Canada, a lot of um, hospitals and other healthcare settings are dropping their mask mandates. And I think that uh, some of this big wave has led to some, I think, truly amazing moments of textual dissonance. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my favorite, of course, being the tweet from a children's hospital that's been spiraling around Twitter, um, which oh is, I'll, I'll just read it. So this is from the official account of McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. I'm just <laughs> saying so you can, you know, if you're a local there, you can uh, call them out or whatever. But it reads, quote, beginning Wednesday, masks will be encouraged, but no longer required to be worn by patients and visitors at our our hospital and all other Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joseph's hospitals. We still ask that you stay home if you're feeling unwell. Uh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> obviously that's wait. outrageous. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the hospital. You heard that right. It's the hospital. It's where you go when you're unwell. Further to the point, it's a fucking children's hospital. And they're telling you, you know, stay home when you feel unwell. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, you have like the uh, asshole hospital administrators who are like, um, you know, actually, this is referring to uh, outpatient procedures. And so we're just telling, you know, unwell patients and staff to stay away from the outpatient procedures, which have returned to normal and can just proceed, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're not talking about sick kids. We're not talking about the sick part of the hospital, but it's like, but it's all the sick part of the hospital. It's all the sick part of the, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? You're going to put well kids getting cancer treatment you know who don't have covid potentially in the room with people who are asymptomatic and not masked because they're in the not sick part of the hospital where people are there for outpatient treatment like for (sighs) cancer you know like what the fuck are they talking about sorry i I mean i think this gets us to the bigger point which is you know in, in a way 
this kind of shows the problem, which is to say, you know, what we're going to talk about is how there should have always been masking mm-hmm. in places like hospitals in healthcare settings. Yeah. But regardless of that, I think like the self-evident absurdity of that claim, stay home if you're unwell. Like we're a hospital, by the way, stay home if you're unwell. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it is kind of a mask off moment in, I guess, more of a metaphorical sense as well, because it's like, oh, yeah, the hospital is just for collecting and processing like fees related to the administration of healthcare. You know what I mean? Like the hospital is not for receiving treatment if you're sick. Like please stay home. And I think it's interesting because when you look at, for instance, you know, if you go, you know, beyond the meme, as it were, and Mm -hmm. you look at the actual rationale document the hospital put out, uh, obviously, it's just a PR document. It's not anything like a scientific rationale document necessarily. But, um, you know, on April 17th, that specific hospital put out a rationale for why it's dropping mask mandates, which I I don't even necessarily think a lot of other hospitals are doing, like putting like the reason why. But it's really funny because when you look at, I mean, it's not really... You know, funny is a relative term, whatever. It, it's funny it's a little a sad, but it, it's funny because later way. the the rationale that they list, um, I'll just read it. They say it, it's a three part rationale. There are three reasons. One is, uh, quote, public health Ontario masking requirements for hospitals were recently updated. And at this time, Ontario is considered to be in a non high risk period, which, as we'll talk about, is very similar to the guidance changes happening in the U.S. right yeah. now. Um, again, this is a hospital in Canada. Uh, two was on the advice of regional and hospital COVID-19 infection prevention and control experts. Love some unnamed experts for COVID guidance. Um, but the real big one is number three, uh, which just says, only says, no other thing, says alignment with other hospitals. Oh, <laughs> cool. That's my God. Cool. Um, you know, I'm just confused as to which bridge-based idiom to use here uh, <laughs> because I feel like... I could either turn to the old thing of like, if you saw someone jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like I'm being sold a bridge. So, you know, I don't know. A bridge to nowhere. Well, so, so I spoke to kind of recently, I spoke to Austin Fisher, who is a reporter for, I think, an NPR affiliate in in New Mexico. Mexico. And he shared with me some documents related to the again this is like april 16th you know it's kind of eerie that the timing of of all of this stuff um this spring seems to be very like interrelated across hospital systems but um as of april 16th like they no longer are mandating masking but austin shared with me some documents related to you know their their rationale for for doing this and it's exactly like like what you're describing with this Canadian hospital already and the way that they're framing it is like oh you know like we're doing we're we're making a color coded system based on whether you know covid is endemic or it's quote seasonal surge or extreme risk and i mean it's totally not a scientific document one of the things that i said to austin in our conversation was uh you know, a lot of this is hinging on this distinction between endemic and epidemic, but that's really a qualitative and not a quantitative distinction. Oh, yeah. And that is also very clear from, you know, these types of internal documents and these rationales that are being put forward for dropping masking. So, you know, these documents from the University of New Mexico 
the thing that really struck me was, okay, but there's no, there are no numbers on here. And you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of numbers, but like, I was like, there's no transmission threshold. You know what I, you know what I mean? Given for when you move from endemic to seasonal surge to extreme risk. And even, I mean, the extreme risk category masking for COVID is categorically like not going to happen anymore at the university of New Mexico, because the extreme risk category where masks would be required to come back is for situations where it's like a new virus or, oh my you God. know, there are no, there are no tests and no treatments and no vaccines available. Need a oh whole my new God. pandemic again. Yeah. Oh, the the most that, the most that masks will ever come back for COVID is the seasonal surge. And it's like a strongly recommended or strongly encouraged type of situation, which is like a COVID, a COVID surge. But anyway, I, it, that, what you were describing just kind of made me think of that um, already, because I think it's a very, very interesting and I mean, there's there's other stuff that we could talk about with this, but it's interesting how this like endemic endemicity discourse is being mobilized, how completely vague it is. And I think that that is on purpose. I mean, not that we would even be able to know, you know, like testing infrastructure and all of that has been so dismantled that I think it's a pretty I think it's pretty difficult to get a clear picture of transmission at this point. But it's like, you know, these rationales don't even include they don't even faint towards, you know, setting transmission benchmarks or, or benchmarking what they're doing to actual transmission. It's just the vibe of, okay, COVID is endemic now. And what endemic really means, again, there's Whatever no... Whatever we want it to mean. Yeah, exactly. There's no quantitative threshold at which, you know, a disease transitions from epidemic to endemic. All it is is a value judgment that, you know, like we don't we don't care about this level of, of transmission anymore. Ugh, I mean, even beyond that, this to me, especially the kind of assertion of like the only time that a real high threat scenario can happen again is a new disease with no tests and no treatments. This this to me really kind of goes beyond. It's it's very I have no grief left. I have no surprise I'm just in like rage, exhaustion, frustration continuum, you know, but this does feel like part of the project that we've been seeing from a lot of the people who have driven the narrative of like, we really don't need masks, you know, part of what mm -hmm. the intent seems to be is not just to deal with masks now, but to use COVID as a moment to make a claim about masks moving forward, too, masks in perpetuity, really mm -hmm. trying to use this opportunity not just to assert that masks are not appropriate for COVID anymore, but masks are potentially not appropriate for other things like yeah. the flu yeah. or measles or mumps. Like you're saying, University of New Mexico Health System, that if there is a measles outbreak in the New Mexico Health System, you're not yeah. in a condition to recommend masking. And I suspect a lot of other what places are doing similar. Fuck? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. This is, it just it just makes me so fucking angry. Usually I'm not screaming this early into an episode, <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's just the coordination, the speed. It's not alarming. It's just fucking exhausting. And it's clearly part of, I think, a larger ideological project trying to discredit masking as a whole. Because, I mean, as we're saying today, like masking is an important intervention that we should just have in medical settings, not just hospitals, too. The fucking pharmacy, your local CVS should have a masked policy, right? Like if you're distributing medicines to sick people in a closed space, everyone should have to wear a mask. That should be how things are moving forward. This is like an attempt to make that 
future categorically impossible. Artie um, had sent as part of the preparation for this episode, like a long list of all these hospital systems and when they have you know, dropped their mask mandates and the specific contours of it. And what you're saying, B, is reminding me of that because I got kind of a um, very, very sinister feeling reading through that list and seeing that some of the hospitals, but not all, took care to mention, oh, don't worry, masking will still be required in operating rooms. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, like... There is, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be too conspiratorial or whatever, but I think I think you're totally right. You know what I mean? The future in which we kind of learned anything or adapted in sort of a permanent way to the threat of respiratory viruses in healthcare settings is definitely being foreclosed on. But I also think there are like sinister implications for things that we thought were fairly established, like infection control principles, because I mean, you do have to violate infection control principles for healthcare to no longer mandate masking for COVID at this point. And right. um, yeah, I am, I'm like afraid of what other like dominoes are going to fall. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I think that this tweet from the children's hospital is so revealing because it sort of says it all. We're saying that the threat of the virus is lessened to the point that we no longer require masking in healthcare settings. However, because of the ongoing threat of the virus, stay home if you're unwell. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, and this is sort of the new reality. And, and not only I mean, I think it's interesting because obviously um, the th- this it's like this is the final frontier in a way of pandemic normalization. Um, mm-hmm. I think in part because there are so many different situations, so many different places where you could imagine, um, you know, let's let's say, for example, before, like when there was a mass mandate a long time ago. Right. Like and I know some states never had them like talking about a United States context specifically, like in a state that had a mass mandate before we would talk about like, OK, well, let's say you're an employee somewhere and you're taking COVID seriously and you want to make sure that, you know, someone who's coming in, uh, coming into your workplace or whatever is masked, you can then point to not even, you know, company policy or whatever, but like the state, you can point to state policy and say, Mm -hmm. no, no, the state says that, you know, for everyone's safety, we have to do this collectively. You know, this is a collective thing. Um, don't get mad at me. I'm not the asshole telling you to mask like the state is and the state, you know, that's a pretty good function, I think, for the state or states in general, if you want to be more, uh, you know, like American vague about it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty good function for the state to play as the like the punching bag of um you know, being being the nag or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let the hospital um, be the good cop or whatever. Things have whittled, you know, we've talked about the process of what happens when those things get whittled down. Obviously, then, it, you know, it's much more difficult to be, for instance, in your workplace and telling someone who's like, a, I don't know, a customer or whatever, or like someone who's coming into your workplace um, to mask if it's if all you have to fall back on is your own personal appeal, which they can mm-hmm. then just easily ignore. Right. Not even like a company policy or whatever. Um, now it's even there's this even kind of a step beyond that, which is. Uh, well, I don't even have to do this in a hospital. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, I think as a as just a symbolic space, this the idea that even in these shared infrastructural spaces where especially something like a healthcare set, like any healthcare setting where medically vulnerable people basically must congregate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, as we're talking about, it's very insidious. Well, and the idea that people will just stay home when they're sick, right? Like, the, the the fact of the matter is that could 
be an effective thing to maybe deter patients coming in for outpatient procedures or, you know, so-called well visits or like specialist visits, you know, the kind of thing where you're not like, I'm going to the doctor because I clearly am sick with something right now that I need treatment for, like COVID or the flu, but the kind of ongoing uh, maintenance appointments, right? But to to really like actually have the, oh, and stay home if you're sick policy work, it would also have to like be reflected in the staffing ratios that there are enough people who work at that hospital to make sure that like staff people can actually stay home when they're sick because the fact of the matter is they don't, right? Like we know this. A new study actually mm-hmm. just came out recently that was looking at the Veterans Affairs system in Boston. And it showed that half of healthcare workers with symptomatic COVID continued to go to work even if they were involved with direct patient care, the studies basically that we have beyond that, it was about 50% of people in the Boston VA system were willing to go back to work and would go back to work symptomatic with COVID. Other studies show that between 14 and 70% of healthcare workers go to work while symptomatically sick. And you know, as we know, just in 2023, and this is definitely an undercount, the <laughs> HHS has documented over 130,000 hospital-acquired infections of COVID just in 2023, in the first three months through March. So it's like, we know that this is going around. Patients are getting it. So we know that there are a lot of hospital workers who are also getting it, who are going to work sick. And like the reason why they're going to work sick It's not because they lack sick pay. It's not because they are afraid of being punished. It's because they don't want to leave their coworkers without adequate support and backup. Because of understaffing. So they're going to work sick knowing that it's putting patients at risk, knowing that it's putting their coworkers at risk because in the risk-benefit analysis of leaving the hospital understaffed or going in with COVID, they're being forced to make the decision to go in with COVID. And that has way more to do with like a much broader perspective on the political economy of health than just the kind of narrow way that we think about just COVID impacting our system. This is like a much bigger problem relative to how we even think of how medical institutions should be staffed and like how workers should be protected from getting sick. I mean, this is why it's so important to like mask all the time in healthcare settings. Could you imagine how much easier it would be to try and manage physicians going into work sick if at least everybody was fucking wearing a mask by requirement at all times on the job? Like, what the fuck? You know, in terms of immediate interventions that are cheap and would fucking save our system from itself, capitalism saving capitalism from capitalism, as Ruthie Gilmore says, like, Masking is one of those things that is a fucking no-brainer. I think, um, I know that we're mostly preaching to the choir here, but I want to just throw in uh, an explanation generally. I think it's important to like be very clear about the reasons why we're saying masking, frankly, should have been a requirement in healthcare settings before the pandemic, even. You know, like healthcare settings and settings like them should be places where there is a broad social expectation and understanding that you wear a mask there. Um, You know, I'll just start with personal experience. Like, let's talk about the hospital or the ER. Um, If you're a listener and you're not sick yourself, um, (laughs) consider, for example, what you might hear from your sick friends, if you have sick friends, about when and under what circumstances they feel comfortable going to an emergency room. Before COVID. Um, Even before COVID, right, yeah. (laughs) Ask them, for example, if they were sick 
uh, prior to the pandemic and prior to our brief period of universal masking, why they might not have wanted to go to the ER on a holiday weekend. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had experiences, for example, where B really needed to go be checked out immediately, but it was Labor Day weekend or something like that. Fourth of July. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and every time that's happened, it's always a very real choice between whether it is safe to subject her to that because mm-hmm. B is immunocompromised um, and more important to, you know, get the care as timely as possible or if the care should be delayed. Um, and remember, we're talking about an ER visit here. This is not something where we should be talking about these cost and benefit uh, weighing scenarios to use <laughs> to borrow yeah, the term that. that we're using. But um, because what happens on holiday weekends is like, Staffing is usually a mess. ER backs up. When the ER gets full, for example, not only does everything take longer, but um, sometimes, for instance, like you'll end up, you know, not in a room or something. Obviously, obviously it depends on the hospital, but you'll end up not in a room or something, but in the hallway with a bunch of people around you, you know, maybe coughing or whatever, especially now in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of that could be COVID. But in general, for immunocompromised people, that was always a fucking horror show. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We'd go in for one thing, come out uh, and, you know, one or two days later, sometimes like B literally would have the flu or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, at least once I can remember, at least once that I can recall, we had to go back for something that be caught in the hospital. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, The term for this, I think B kind of referenced this before, but the term for this is nosocomial infection, actually, like an infection coming from a, a hospital encounter. But, you know, considering the experience I'm talking about, I just want to add that the fact that we obviously know that, as B was mentioning, nosocomial COVID infections, you know, COVID infections acquired in the hospital is a very real ongoing problem. And that 138,000 number I cited is 1,000% an undercount. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I just want to be clear that basically in me grounding this in personal experience, this isn't just about some like selfish desire or whatever. It's that this is such a pervasive thing that a lot of people have had this experience. And now, you know, we're in this situation where if you're dropping a masking requirement in healthcare settings in general, you have a whole vast array of people with all kinds of conditions that make them additionally medically vulnerable to COVID, more vulnerable to COVID than they are from simply being human beings. <laughs> um, removing mask mandates from healthcare settings, I see no way that it will produce anything but, you know, A, uh, increasing the amount of hospital-acquired COVID infections, but B, again, making literally every healthcare setting a more dangerous place to be for a huge group of people and specifically a group of people that structurally depend often on these sites of care. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, we can we can talk about why you would have like, again, my examples are from pre pandemic. We can talk about why you would mask in a healthcare setting in the in the first place before the pandemic. But especially now that we're Mm -hmm. doing this bullshit song and dance of, you know, COVID's maybe not over, but it's normal. It's just around. Well, you know that it's around as again, evidenced by this children's hospital tweet. Right. Mm-hmm. We know that it's around like this should be an expectation that if if anything, again, if we're going to, quote unquote, learn anything from the pandemic, this is the thing that 
should carry over indefinitely. Mm-hmm. A know? culture yeah. of masking, a broad culture <laughs> of masking, especially in healthcare settings. I mean, here's what we know. Respiratory infectious diseases, they're highly fucking contagious. We know that a hospital, like any congregate setting, is a concentration of sick people all sharing the same air. If we go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years and look at the design of care spaces and care architecture, for thousands of years, the primary intervention that most physicians actually had to work with was fucking fresh air. (laughs) I was actually, it's funny that you bring this up because I was literally considering bringing up the same point. Like, have you seen convalescent spaces from before the hospital was even a thing? And... I, I from was, before well, medicine existed I, I, was, I was kind of right. like that's going to take us too often in the way it's basically but I think you're right no you're very we know, right yeah. you know respiratory diseases are highly contagious we know that making sure that we keeping sick patients from breathing each other's air is a really good way to keep people from getting sicker when they've come to you for fucking care and it's a good way to protect your fucking carers from not only getting sick themselves, but making each other sick, making their families sick, making patients more sick. I mean, this is such a no-brainer. And the point of making it universal is so nobody ever has to actually think about it. If it were a baseline infection control practice across the board, it would be hugely advantageous to those trying to continue to run our for-profit healthcare system as lean and mean as possible, right? Because if you're talking about really wanting to optimize your fucking care workforce, these are the kinds of things that are important, like making sure someone gets an HIV test if they stick themselves with a needle in the line of work, right? Like these are things where it's just a given that baseline, this is at a minimum, you know, leverage towards a broader goal of reducing the disease that we have to deal with as a sort of systemic and individual intervention all at once, right? So like that should be our number one COVID lesson. And I think all of the work that has gone into discrediting masking is more so about making sure that project of learning from COVID, of of learning masking from COVID never happens. Because more so than COVID, that is the fear, I think, of the people like the fucking Jeffrey Tuckers and the Great Barrington Declaration and the people saying that like masking is causing long COVID or that, you know, not being able to see each other's smiles is making care delivery harder. You know, their project is making sure masking is not normalized. They don't want that. Well, and I think what's really going on here, I mean, this is all true. You know what I mean? It makes no it makes no sense from an infection control standpoint. Um, It makes no sense from a cost benefit standpoint. You know what I mean? Even if you don't give a shit about people acquiring infections in the hospital, hospital acquired infections are expensive. You know what I mean? Like they require treatment and hospitals are very concerned about that. But, you know, I was reading like the, the CDC guidance update or whatever. I mean, it's so hard to even classify what these fucking documents like even are. But the one from September. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where they no longer are recommending, you know, universal masking in healthcare facilities. And the whole time I was reading through it, I was just like, okay, like, I mean, it's it's political abandonment. The CDC is just like the Biden administration's like dark id. They're terrified of the right. You know what I mean? And they're making all of these 
movements that make no actual sense out of, I think, what they believe is an electoral calculation about like where the the median voter stands on symbols of the ongoing pandemic. And, you know, every hospital system is just like simping for that. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, this is clearly, I mean, you know, everything is political, but I'm like, this is clearly just like politically motivated. It's more like electoral blundering by an agency with a political appointee, you know, as its head and all these very serious people, you know, I just read an article in the the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is like a real journal about how, you know, masking Mm -hmm. is a precaution whose time has come and gone. And I'm like, you're just simping for like literally the Democrats like triangulating for 2024. Like it's it's unbelievable And I don't know, I feel like that's what's really going on. You know, like it doesn't it doesn't make sense in any other way. But it's like it's deeply related to, I think, what the Democrats believe their electoral prospects are um, for the upcoming year. And I think that's like that's the maneuvering and that's the political abandonment that's happened is the CDC is just saying, like, it's fine. You know, like you do you do you. And all of these health systems and all of these people that should know better. I mean, the people that wrote this Annals of Internal Medicine, at least one of them is the head of infection control at a major hospital. Like, you should fucking know better than that. But, you know, here they here they are, nevertheless, you know, complaining well, about they, how they have different priorities. They have different values. You know, the head of the infection control for a hospital has way different priorities and values than we have. And to layer some of that blame for a second, like it's not just the CDC who has fully capitulated here to this kind of idea of like whether it's the median voter who's just had it and they've got to position themselves for 2024, whether it's the a made up guy, the, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. that made up guy, whether it's the sort of made up um, problem of, oh, this is simply sort of what we can afford. This is harm reduction. This is working with business partners. Hindering this communication is- and empathy in the healthcare encounter Ugh, as if anyone right. gives a fuck about that. <laughs> right. But this is, these are the problems those people pretend are fucking real. And whether they believe it or not, these are the terms with which the issue of masking is being negotiated. And it's not the just the CDC who's capitulating and abdicating their role in this by saying we're going to just like do whatever is best for sort of the normalization of a of a of moving forward and not learning from this or whatever but it's not just the CDC who could do something here like you know Medicare already has controls in place to punish hospitals when they don't manage infection controls. You know, there are much broader ways that we could be looking at what's going on and also beyond just the the CDC basically kind of backing off and saying we're going to leave it up to states. You know, we haven't seen other agencies step forward either. Yeah, I mean to be really explicit because I think this is a very important point, you know, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which, like the CDC, is an agency within the broader umbrella of HHS, Health and Human Services, like CMS sets very, you know, in the same way that, for instance, we are critical of how the Biden administration completely whiffed it, you know, probably intentionally, basically on the OSHA recommendations, the OSHA guidelines that they promised and never truly delivered the sort of regulatory position that OSHA has over, you know, general workforce conditions. Um, CMS, the, you know, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a even more 
strong, you know, thumb on the finger of healthcare settings in general, mostly because, you know, CMS sets regulations that make it possible, for instance, for hospitals to get federal funding from Medicare, right? Mm -hmm. They can set the terms of under which conditions hospitals can accept, again, Medicare, one of the biggest and most dependable payers that these hospital systems have, right, or all healthcare settings generally have. Um, You know, again, if you think about it, HHS and CMS have this even more direct leverage over healthcare settings than, you know, other agencies have over, I don't know, whether people are masking it Best Buy or Kroger or something, because, you know, part of the long established regulatory function of CMS is to set these standards for this simple reason that I've outlined already, which is, um, you know, the fe- the federal government is, if you want to think about it in really crass terms, one of their main customers, as it were. And obviously that's describing things in this like very ideologically bankrupt framework that things operate within in the United States where healthcare settings are at this point of sale. And, you know, the main regulatory functions that we have over them are shaped so that, you know, both uh, both the carrot and the stick are directed towards market functions basically. But that that is the reality that we have. So if we wanted to, it's, it, you know, because CDC can say there should be masking in healthcare settings. We should have a mask requirement in healthcare settings. Obviously, in September of last year, they dropped that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you're seeing states roll it back now. But beyond that, you know, there are other agencies that could have an even more direct uh, other agencies, again, like CMS, that could have an even more direct impact on this simply by updating the guidelines to say, OK, well, if you're a hospital, if you're you know an outpatient facility, if you're whatever, any one of these things that accepts Medicare payments from the federal government, you <laughs> one of the regulations, one of the many, many healthcare regulation, like healthcare setting regulations that you have to follow is there should be masking. Right. right. You, they could do that. They ha- obviously there's no precedent. one's talking about that within the federal government. There's precedent. Clearly. There's clear, obvious precedent. OK, ready for this? This is a CDC MMWR following up on some changes that were made to Medicare in 2003 and 2005. Starting on October 1st, 2008, Medicare refused payment for certain hospital acquired infections. They said if you have a patient and you're doing a vascular catheter procedure or they have a urinary catheter and they get a hospital acquired infection from that catheter, we will not pay you for that. CMS will and Medicare will not pay for those services if you get that patient infected while you're doing those two catheter procedures. And surprise, surprise. Conclusions of this MMWR, the results suggest Medicare non-payment policy is associated with both the decline in the rate of hospital-acquired infections per quarter and the probability of acquiring the infection. So CDC has done multiple MMWRs um, over the years studying all of the times that we've already used CMS and Medicare as a fucking bully pulpit to reduce hospital-acquired infections. Yeah. CDC, CMS, HHS... The Biden administration, they know about this. This is something that was a major issue discussed in the process of the ACA expansions, the ACA implementation. All of this, they know. All of this, they refuse to do. Right? Like, and so, yes, fuck Rochelle Walensky. Fuck all of them. This is how complete their refusal is to do 
the bare minimum on COVID. Well, but also I think this is a really important takeaway for this part of it in particular, which is that the, the really thorny problem with so much of the mass mandate discourse is federalism fundamentally, right? Because mm-hmm, right. technically speaking, you know, Joe Biden or whatever, or Rochelle Walensky can't just go, okay, there must be a mask mandate, you know, whatever, everywhere throughout the United States. They don't technically have that type of authority. However, what, and, and so by extension, for example, the th- the reason I say like, oh, CDC can put its recommendation for no longer do hospitals or healthcare settings have to have a mask mandate in place. And that's, you know, that's a that's a suggestion, basically. I mean, it's a suggestion. Uh, it's a suggestion that, as we've seen, um, has a lot of weight. And the suggest like this guidance obviously is very important. There's a reason that we've talked about it for so long and so often over the course of this pandemic. However, you know, as we're talking about, if, for example, for for people, and there are a lot of people doing very good work, I think, pushing for mass mandates in healthcare settings to continue. I think one of the main targets of that ire and agitation should be at CMS because in in part, I mm-hmm. think, in, because uh, obviously the, there's, the, there's the baseline thing of they have outsized control actually over healthcare settings in the United States broadly because of this, you know, again, to be crass, like power of the purse argument that Medicare holds, um, which is part of why one of the factors that we talk about when we talk about the reason to have Medicare for all, by the way, but mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation. But so they have this outsized regulatory function, but also I guarantee you think of how little you've heard about other parts of HHS mm-hmm. over the course of this pandemic. CDC has gotten the lion's share of public scorn and derision and for very good reason. But I guarantee you CMS is not ready to be publicly piled on <laughs> in this way for their continued inaction. So that is just something that I would flag. This actually brings us back to something I really wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk about today, which is this uh, opinion piece in Annals of Internal Medicine called, quote, Universal Masking in Healthcare Settings, a Pandemic Strategy Whose Time Has Come and Gone for Now. Yeah, the one that Abby was mentioning earlier. Yeah. Yeah, And this is just uh, this whole piece is a really good example of some of the rhetoric that is actually being leveraged right now to try and push this argument and try and close the window, not just on masking for COVID, but on masking for for all things in healthcare settings. And also kind of beyond that, pushing towards trying to claw back things like asymptomatic testing. Yeah, this I thought this was a fascinating document for a number of reasons. As, you know, we were kind of talking about with the the guidance documents that hospitals are producing for themselves, you know, this document, while leaning very heavily on the idea of an evidence-based infection control strategy, has no numbers in it, right? Like it talks a lot about the transition, the transition to endemicity for COVID, but doesn't say what that actually means. There is a, a truly amazing like PowerPoint figure in this uh, showing five phases, you know, phase one is universal masking in healthcare and it's high infection mortality, no treatment, limited or no immunity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And like the phases, it's like 
I'll, I'll just I can read them really quick if you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. I think this is really <laughs> yeah. Do indicative. an image description. <laughs> uh, also, yeah. Well, I guess well, the image description in this case I feel like has to almost rely on itself a visual signifier, which is not the best way for image descriptions to go. But it's sort of imagine if you turned the um, Olympic rings logo like ninety degrees to the right, <laughs> essentially Make it vertical. Uh, yeah, make it vertical. And then it has these, you know, phases uh, going in it. So we have something some sort of, you know, occult hybrid between the Olympic rings logo and I guess, you know, a Marvel Cinematic Universe phases chart or something. But it goes, uh, yeah, phase one universe. And this is in, in a perverse way. This almost the what I'm about to describe, I think, almost lists the phases of normalization that we have gone through in the pandemic uh, more so than these people maybe realize, but it's phase one universal masking and healthcare. And that's, you know, supposed to be the beginning because if we remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this whole thing about um, CDC and and Fauci, for instance, we're not going to recommend universal masking specifically because the idea was, well, we need, we have a limited supply of masks and we need to reserve those for healthcare workers. So phase one masking in, Universal masking in healthcare. Phase two, universal community and school masking. Phase three, community masking requirements lifted. So we're yep. like we're we're running like very quickly through this <laughs> uh, whole situation. But yeah, uh, re- phase three, get rid of those community masking uh, requirements. Phase four, school masking requirements lifted, which I feel like they only list as a separate phase because they don't want to get a specific type of person mad at them or something they want to appear reasonable anyway final phase phase five universal masking discontinued in healthcare. and the suggestion here i think is to borrow some language that they use in this piece itself is that we have now reached phase five where it is safe to lift universal masking in healthcare because um at, at the very top they say quote Healthcare settings remain one of the last environments where widespread masking requirements continue despite the evolution of the pandemic and transition to endemicity, unquote. Well, and they also, I mean, (laughs) everything about this pisses me off, but, you know, they they first, they lay out the... the, the conditions for why universal masking was used in the first place. And they say, okay, you know, it was was one part of of a larger bundle, you know, of, of, transmission control strategies, many of which uh, interfered with care delivery, but we didn't have, you know, a better option. And it's like, okay, but like universal masking does not interfere with care delivery the same way that like telemedicine, you know what I mean? Like restricting access to like healthcare facilities does. So that pisses me off. This is so disingenuous. I hate when people do this. That's like, I mean, that's just a rhetorical move that is bullshit then they talk about how you know okay they say i'm i'm reading it now they say maintaining masking requirements for healthcare providers during all direct clinical encounters may marginally reduce the risk for transmission from healthcare provider to patient or from patient to healthcare provider these potential incremental benefits however need to be weighed against increasingly <laughs> recognized costs okay which they call as impeding communication increased uh in listening effort um cognitive load increased for cognitive and load for patients and clinicians and i'm like i'm so like have you ever been to the fucking doctor like they don't like the idea that anyone is concerned with my cognitive load when i'm like interacting with a healthcare provider is 
is ridiculous. And then they say, you know, masks, obscure facial expression contributes to feeling, contribute to feelings of isolation and negatively impact human connection, trust and perception of empathy. Perception of empathy. And it's like, okay, like, I don't believe you. Like, this is just not a strong, like, it's just not a, it's not a strong case, but what is actually, I'm sorry, I'm like fucking yelling. I feel like my voice has gotten really loud. Um, you know, so, they are talking about how all the other all the other tools again it's the tools as um as friend of the pod ariana planey has said you know the tools as a pretext for just total biopolitical abandonment they say that the other tools mean that we don't have to do this and in fact we can reconsider other you know pandemic era strategies like asymptomatic testing yeah. i mean great fine whatever um but what's really interesting to me about this is like this fucking bullshit, like like health researchers, like health writing is full of this fucking bullshit where they're just talking about like, oh, well, we really need to study this. You know what I mean? To figure out like we need we need lots of high quality data, you know, to inform the decisions that we're going to make. And it's like, okay, we don't need that. Like that is just like, that's just masturbation for the field of, you know, epidemiology, healthcare policy management, whatever. Like we don't need that. We, I mean, we don't need it and we're not going to get it. We're not going to get high quality epidemiologic data, you know, with frequent updates to, you know, inform scaling, scale up or scale down decisions, as they say. Um, but what's really interesting is that they're calling this, right, like this transition to endemicity and this vague, you know, kind of like wand waving that, oh, we're going to get all this amazing data and we're going to analyze it and we're going to come up with an optimal solution. They're, they're, they're calling this and they're thinking of this as, you know, evidence-based, evidence-based public health, you know, like we're informing policy with evidence. But I've got something to say about evidence-based, you know, the, the evidence-based public health and evidence-based me- medicine. I know I've kind of like ranted about this on the show before, but I've been doing some research about the, the very concept of risk, you know, the idea of risk and how it's kind of used in healthcare. And, you know, the evidence-based, the, the, the movement for evidence-based medicine was really based on the use of or the the conflation, I guess, of the the very vague concept of risk with calculation of like empirical frequencies, you know, empirical probabilities, which it turns out, you know, I mean, there and there was, you know, a big movement to to make guidelines uh, for medical care and treatment and things like that based on evidence from epidemiologic trials, evidence meaning, you know, empirical frequencies that are that are analyzed statistically, whatever. The problem is that it's very, very hard to translate, you know, population statistics to individual treatment decisions. It's like kind of unclear what like risk means for an individual person. And the upshot of the the sort of like transition to or, you know, the, the movement for evidence-based medical care has also been accompanied by the increase in what's called like shared decision-making, which is basically like, okay, well, we're just going to inform you about the risks, but it's, it's really up to you. Like, really, like you do, you do you, like, it's really up to you to decide um, how this is going to happen. And I mean, there aren't even any, there aren't, there aren't any numbers in this. You know what I mean? Like this evidence is based on nothing. It's just a vague wish that we are going to collect all this data that like we haven't been collecting and that no one cares about collecting, you know, to inform the perfect policy going forward. But 
you know, what it comes down to and, you know, what this like wish for for evidence based public health really comes down to, I think, is like you do you. You know what I mean? Is is shared, quote unquote, shared decision making. Um, and I feel like we know how that's going to kind of play out. I don't know. It's it's almost like throughout this pandemic, there's been this like fantasy of it's this it's this like fantasy of expertise and control through data that, you know, on the ground is clearly not real. And, you know, I think this is why, you know, this piece like sucks so much. You know what I mean? Like, this is why they don't bother mounting any kind of convincing argument whatsoever, because I don't know, there isn't one. Um, It's just, you know, the patina, the sheen of, of, technocratic control you know and scientificity and, yeah yeah science. exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i think it's i think when when thinking about arguments like this done by you know shira doran at all um that this you know annals piece but also a lot of the other conversation that's happened around this um and i think specifically this idea of risk i feel like to understand some of the stuff that's going on and to understand for instance why you know, to a certain degree, what you're saying, Abby, it reminds me of the thing that we've said for a very long time, which is you have to always remember that things that kind of fit the current hegemonic mold have a much lower barrier of required proof, mm-hmm. you know, to be carried yeah. forward. And I think that um, I think for me, some of, for instance, this like dropping of uh, masking in healthcare settings, but also to a certain extent, like. Uh, something that we haven't mentioned in this episode, which is, you know, the Eric Adams, you know, mask off at the door policies, for example. Um, I feel like a lot of the discourse around masking, whether it is, you know, this kind of big last wave of, uh, you know, dropping masking even in healthcare settings, or it's this, you know, potential criminalization of masking as in the Eric Adams sense. Um, I feel like what this makes me, what this all makes me think of and this sort of risk idea makes me think of is, you know, in a sense, I feel like it can be hard if if you've been following what's been happening with COVID or if you're like listening to the death panel uh, or like if you've been generally paying pretty close attention to this stuff, I feel like it can be hard to remember exactly what the social role of the mask was in American society prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could just talk about like masking as a signifier for a second, because mm-hmm. what the mask as a signifier was before and what I would argue um you know, the role of the mask has become sort of again in the prevailing monoculture is that, you know, prior to COVID, wearing a face mask in public meant exactly one thing in American society, which was that person wearing the mask was potentially a threat or was potentially contagious, Mm -hmm. you know, with something you didn't want to catch. And that wasn't ever true, right? I mean, you know, to use another, I've already used a personal example in this episode before, but to use another personal example, Shortly after B and I met, we went on this very un- uncharacteristically impulsive move of like going to Marfa for <laughs> uh, for a trip, and and this you know that was, that was way ago. pre-COVID. Yeah. yeah, this is like what seven eight years ago or something now. Yeah, and you know that was my first time uh, wearing a mask on a plane, for example, because B like she is now was immunocompromised then. We were you know masking on the plane not because you know was infectious or anything because she wasn't but because wearing the mask on the plane was about protecting b from all the stuff on the plane and yet everyone looking oh, yeah you know, sure. we were like suspicious as fuck 
You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone was looking at us like we were uh, like they were about to be like they were in the opening scene of Contagion or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Mouse open staring. And, just straight up staring. Right. And so, you know, B's immunocompromised. So we were both masking and, you know, it was to protect B from pathogens and not the other way around. Nowhere in Texas and get super sick. Yeah. Surprise. Martha is truly remote. Like, and, and, um, and B still got sick, by the yeah. way, which is how I didn't need COVID to know that one way masking doesn't work. But anyway, <laughs> the point is. Fast forward to today, and I think we see a lot of the same impulses kicking back in. Like that cultural imaginary of illness and the face mask has carried over uncritic somehow has carried over uncritically from our pre-pandemic moment, I think. And so once again, there is this completely baffling, wrong-headed idea that just, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people, I think, see the face mask and it rem- and it's not merely that it, you know, to use Rochelle Walensky's uh, phrase, it's not merely that it, you know, reminds us that we're still in the middle of the pandemic, as she said when she said that masking was the scarlet letter. You know, it's not this signifier, a visual signifier that the mas- that the pandemic is ongoing. Now it's, I would argue, that mm-hmm. like we are reassuming this social position of, or this sociality, this pre-pandemic sociality of assuming the person wearing the mask is somehow the threat, and that that person is engaging in their personal responsibility to do source control or whatever because they're sick. Mm-hmm. When, as we know, the reality is exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's... And, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not just blaming like people in scare quotes because I I don't blame people for falling back on these assumptions because, frankly, when you survey the last three years, like what work was done (laughs) to suggest otherwise to people, Mm -hmm. right? You know, what work was done to suggest otherwise? Like basically none. I mean, the Trump administration response was obviously cartoonish, you know, but the Biden administration response, like the Biden CDC, for example, has been doing nothing but trying to usher us along into an unattainable post-pandemic moment as quickly as possible, including by doing things that I think have reinforced that old understanding, that old false understanding of what the mess means. Like, for instance, when they change the isolation guidelines to five days, it's, you know, five days and then remember to wear the mask after coinciding with a period where they're telling everyone, well, don't mask unless that's the situation. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? The only situation in which you would possibly need to mask is if you yourself are infected after the fifth day, Mm -hmm. right, is basically the guidelines. And that just plays into that completely false understanding, that false cultural understanding. So, again, if anything, people have had this like myth about or this you know you know false idea of uh what the mask is as a cultural signifier just further burrowed in mm-hmm. yeah when we have this perfect opportunity we had this perfect opportunity to just demonstrate how it's completely the opposite mm-hmm. absolutely i think this really comes down to i i just think that before the pandemic there was no understanding there was no context in American society, but in a lot of societies for why you would even do something like mask preventatively. I had experiences Mm -hmm. where I was encountering doctors in clinical settings before COVID and they would just be like, well, oh, are you sick with something? And I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, well, do you, you know, 
or do you have a primary immunodeficiency? And I'm like, no, I'm just immunocompromised. And I just don't want to sit in your waiting room and breathe everybody else's air. They, you know, they look at you like, what? And it's not like necessarily a hypochondriac or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes they're looking at you like you're a hypochondriac. But sometimes people looked at me like they genuinely had never had occurred to them before. They had never thought about right. it. Yeah, totally. And they were like, oh. Duh, like obviously, but like it just was not something that had ever come up contextually in their entire like 20 years of practice or something. And their mind was just blown. I mean, it's been a range of responses, but that has changed as a result of COVID. I mean, COVID, I think, has been an opportunity for people who don't know shit to solidify an opinion about, you know, masking and and what masking does and means and it's kind of role and value. And the fact of the banner is, is that like we objectively know <laughs> through our own experiences and now like through all sorts of different like ways of and methods of sort of looking at this and studying it and making the, the kind of actuarial proof or whatever that people demand. You know, we know from lots and lots of different ways that just simply like controlling the air that people are breathing is a very important factor in controlling their health outcomes, right? And masking is just one tool of doing that. But it's in terms of like being a target of political language during the pandemic, it's it's been a pretty extreme transformation from something that was not considered to something that now has a kind of concrete meaning and through that meaning has a political reality. You know, like because Language itself is political reality. Like the words that we use to talk about things shape the way that people understand them and it shapes the way that we react to them and respond to them. This kind of narrative that that we've seen like of of masks being something that has been pre-foreclosed on, I think has been very powerful in forcing the the hand of sort of society to not learn this lesson from COVID. Like we've had tremendous pressure, not necessarily just through coercion and intimidation, but through like language itself towards rejecting masking just pretty early on that that has been pervasive and only grown. And as you're saying, Abby, like you really don't need to back this stuff up because it's just like the kind of the support for this is just common sense, right? Like as as you're saying, mm -hmm. Artie, it's just it's partially this kind of broader issue of like, how do we even conceptualize masking and and sort of what is it? Well, this is and this is kind of my point. It's that, you know, because culturally being that one person wearing the mask is understood as being the health threat. Right. Yeah. As opposed mm -hmm. to the other way around. Um, not only does that obviously give a lot of leeway for you know, the dropping of masking because the prevailing cultural sentiment is, oh, well, I'm fine. You know, this the classic thing that we talk yeah. about all the time of the, the binary between the intrinsically ill and the intrinsically well, but uh, the false binary, by the way. But, you know, not only that, it's I think through that lens, you can understand the CDC's guidelines um, and these hospital guidelines and this entire kind of anti, you know, everything down to, you know, practically anti mask crusaders or whatever. Um can be seen as this very misguided attempt to actually make public space, you know, quote unquote safe. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and like anything, you know, what does safety mean? You know, 
really what is meant by making public space safe under this condition like <laughs> you know safety through dropping masking or whatever safe from criminals and deviants and sick people are they the right. same well because right because <laughs> usually mark? under capitalism safety quote unquote only means you know property is secured and class boundaries aren't in question <laughs> you know what i mean yeah um so like a whole lot of social murder can be going around a lot of people can be dying and under this framework you know society is still considered safe as long as those two things are unchallenged you know what i mean yeah well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron. This week, we have a great one with myself, Artie, and Phil about the pervasive myth that Medicare and Social Security are always about to be bankrupt. So if you'd like to listen to that one and all of our back catalog of bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We are entirely listener supported, so thank you, patrons. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we'll catch you in the main feed next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.